basically, two major spots, and then we're going to apply what we've learned today. Talking about paradoxes in the Bible, you'll remember that a paradox is something that when you first look at it, it looks contradictory or absurd, but then when you look closer, you realize it actually makes sense because maybe you just never saw it that way before. So we're talking about paradoxes. There's a picture of a guy, fellas. Bring that guy's picture up. That guy's name is Jeff Mathis. Now, baseball starts this week. I'm going to be real honest with you. I'm kind of almost giddy because <laughs> I like baseball. I'm an old guy, and old guys tend to like baseball. I just don't know why that is. It's just maybe because it's where we were raised when I was a kid. And uh, Dodgers are hopefully going to win it for a change instead of being second runner-up every time. But anyways, that'd be nice. This guy's an unusual guy. His name is, is Jeff Mathis. He's probably, well, back before he signed, was one of the hotly contested free agents in baseball. Here's the amazing thing about it. He's 37 years old. His lifetime batting average is 197. 197 is terrible. I'm not saying I could hit 197, but in baseball standards, that's just that's pathetic. But the thing that makes him amazing is he's a catcher. And probably the best ball framer in all of baseball. Now, for those that don't know what that means is this. You got an umpire that stands behind the catcher. He calls balls and strikes. Is that correct? And a catcher's down there in his position like this. Actually, a little lower, but I'm old, so this is as far <laughs> as it's going. So anyways, he gets down there. And when the ball comes across the plate, they kind of jerk it a little bit so that when the umpire looks at it, it's a strike. So sometimes throughout the game, a catcher will steal some strikes from the hitter because he can frame the ball. Does that make sense? Okay. The article I read talked about his defense. They basically wrote it's unbelievable that he can, such a defensive wizard. And so he's made it in the big leagues now for about, oh, uh, I don't know, 15 years, four or five different teams. And the reason he is so sought after is because he is great with pitching staffs. He's a ball framer. He's got great defense. He's got a decent arm to throw runners out. And he's made all of his money, not by hitting. And if you study Major League Baseball right now, it's all home runs. Who hits the most home runs? But he's a defensive wizard. Now, he's a paradox. He signed a contract for about $3.5 million, $3.5 million to be a backup catcher. That's pretty good pay. It's a paradox. First paradox that we looked at was, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Second paradox that we looked at was if you're going to be truly free, you have to be a slave to the right master. 
The third one we're going to look at today is, in order to experience true strength, you have to become weak. Maybe you've heard this name. I was interested in him because he wrote a best-selling book on David and Goliath. And I've been teaching that neck of the woods lately. His name is Malcolm Gladwell. If you want to look him up on the internet, you can go to TED. Do you ever watch the TED Talks? They have people that come in and talk, and maybe that doesn't do much for you, but usually they're experts in a particular area. And he basically uh, has written several best-selling books, Outliners, The Tipping Point, Blink. His latest book is David and Goliath. And... Uh, the amazing thing was he was talking about a researcher who was speaking at a donors meeting in a prominent university. And there was this room that was filled with successful business people. The researcher asked, how many of you have been diagnosed with a learning disorder? About half the hands went up. Kind of a paradox. Because most of us assume if you're successful, you got to have a above average intelligence and you probably got 1,500 on your SATs. But half of the people in the room of successful people recognize that they had a learning disability. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this. He wrote this. There are two possible interpretations for that fact. One is that this remarkable group of people triumphed in spite of their disability. They were so smart and so creative that nothing, not even a lifetime of struggling with reading could stop them. The second most intriguing possibility is that they succeeded in part because of their disorder. They had learned something in their struggle that proved to be an enormous advantage. I like that, that line. They learned something in their struggle that proved to be an enormous advantage. You know, I wouldn't be surprised that there are some of us in this room who have struggled in life. It could be today you've got a, a learning disorder. Maybe you have a physical disability. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised there's a few that came from dysfunctional families. You may have a phobia. Maybe you struggle with mental illness. And logic says, because you have this struggle, you will not be successful. But maybe because you had that weakness, maybe that's what made you successful. Let that sink in. Most of us think that everybody that's successful were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And they got all the advantages. If you listen to those on the radio now and some political pundits, they say it's because of white privilege. Let me be real honest with you. Let me tell you what my white privilege is. It's called working and paying taxes your whole life. Amen. That's how privileged I've been. We didn't have a silver spoon. They lost the spoon. 
<laughs> There's a lot of truth in that. They lost the spoon. Now, we're going to look in Luke 22. Now, I'm going to say some things today that may freak you out, and I'm, that's not the goal of my message. But maybe we'll think about some things differently. And that's what I am trying to do. You're in Luke 22. I would like for you to stand just for a second. Will you do that? We're going to read a passage of scripture, and then we're going to kind of work our way through this. Luke chapter 22, and if you don't have a Bible and you want to look up at the screen, you're going to find it up there, okay? Luke 22. In fact, I'll read it from the screen. You ready? And he came out and went, and as he was wont, he came to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed after him. Now, let's look at the next verse, fellas. And he came when he was at the place, and he said to them, Pray ye that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and he kneeled down and he prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, I want you to read with me. Will you read this part? And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Let's read that verse again. And there appeared an angel from, unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Now, let me keep reading, all right? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down from the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said unto them, why sleep you? Rise up and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Now, we're going to stop there, but let's, let's kind of work our way through the passage. Be seated. I want you to write some things down today, but I want you to kind of understand the passage. Now, the first point on your outline is Christ's powerful weakness. Now, there's some of you going to shut me off at the first point because Jesus didn't have any weaknesses. Let me ask you a question. The Bible says that an angel came and strengthened him. Did he strengthen him because he had strength? Do you think maybe he strengthened him because he was weak? Logically, does that work, yes or no? Yeah. I'll talk more about that in a few moments. Let's look at the passage. Let's kind of work our way through it. Notice the lonely garden. We're in Luke chapter 22, and let's look down to verse number, oh, 39. Luke 22, and I got I to gotta get my Bible opened up so I can read actually where I want to read. 22 and 39. It says, and he came out and went as he went want to the Mount of Olives. Fellas, you got some pictures of the Mount of Olives, I hope. That's the Mount of Olives. By the way, you see those trees right there? They say those trees are at least 2,000 years old. And you've never seen such gnarly olive trees in all your life. Now, if you go to the Mount of Olives, there are four possible locations. Now, we didn't go to all four locations when I took the church trip and took a lot of you members with me. We went to the one that they think that it possibly is. This is the one by the, the Church of the Nations. It's down at the bottom of the hill. They say the Garden of Gethsemane is right there at the bottom. Now, if you want to write this down, if I don't care if you do or not, Garden of Gethsemane means the olive press. That's what it means. 
If you go back in time and you go back to, by the way, John has this story, Luke has this story, Mark has this story. So you, you read this story all through the Gospels. The Bible says Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes down the Valley of Kidron. So he walks down through the Valley of Kidron. The Valley of Kidron, the word Kidron means mire, gloominess, darkness. That's what the word means. So Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem, walks into the Valley of Kidron, goes down into this valley of darkness, this valley of, of mire. And as he makes his way up, he goes to the Mount of Olives and you start up. And as you start off, there was the Garden of Gethsemane. Olive press. There's a lot of olives there because there's all these olive trees. You see them up in the slide. Everywhere you look, there's big, huge olive trees. Now, if you read some of the Gospels, the Bible basically says that the Garden of Gethsemane was Jesus' abode. So where Jesus hung out, if he wasn't staying at Lazarus' house, which was up over the top of the Mount of Olives, down the other side to a place called Bethany, Jesus and his disciples normally just laid out on the ground in those olive groves in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus and his disciples start walking in there, and he's got all 12 of them, except for one guy's kind of taken off. His name was Judas. Judas. You're doing good. Judas takes off, and he goes down to visit the high priests and the temple officials, and he's over there doing his thing, betraying Christ. And Jesus takes his 11 disciples. He goes in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you read the story, the Bible tells us in this particular story, verse 39, it says, He went uh, to the Mount of Olives. His disciples followed him. And when he was at the place, he said to them, Pray you that you don't enter into temptation. Now, basically, Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows what's going to follow. Judas is going to come. Judas is going to bring 300 soldiers with him. Judas is going to kiss him with a kiss of betrayal. You'll read that a few verses down into the passage. And Jesus basically says, man, your time of trial, your time of temptation is coming. You better be prayed up. You better be spiritually fortified in order to withstand what's coming. Now, the eight disciples, they kind of stay there at the, at the entrance. And three of the guys follow Jesus in, Peter, James, and John. And if you, and if you study the Bible, this is about the third time Jesus has done this. These guys were there, for example, they went with Jesus up to Mount Tabor and they saw Jesus transfigured. How many remember that story? Uh, when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, Jesus took in Peter, James, and John and they watched Jesus raise that young gal back to life. So they saw some things, they did some things that the other disciples didn't get to see. And so Jesus takes the eight, he leaves them there at the entrance, he takes the other ones farther into the garden. I think it's interesting. If you study the scripture, the Bible starts with a garden, it's called the Garden of Eden. If you study the scripture, the Garden of Eden is where sin's introduced. If you study the scriptures, that's where the first Adam, listen, fell and cast the human race into depravity. But if you keep reading, this is where the second Adam comes. 
He comes to a garden and now he's beginning to take that sin upon himself. He sees what's ahead at the cross and he looks at the cup and I think he saw the sin of mankind and he asks God, God, if it's okay with you, may this cup pass from me. By the way, did you know we ultimately end in a garden? Study Revelation 22. And the Bible says we're going to go to a garden that doesn't have any sin. Won't that be super? So the Bible has a lot of stuff about gardens. That's kind of interesting. That's called a sidelight over there. Okay, so let me move on back to my sermon. All right. Now, we see a lonely garden, but we see a costly cup. And the Bible says in verse number 41, and what he would drawn from them, about a stone's cast. So you got eight guys at the entrance. You got three guys that come part of the way. And Jesus is about as far in now as you can throw a rock. And the scripture says in this passage that notice he, he uh, kneels down and he prays. Now, can I help you with some Judaism? You don't see a lot of people kneeling down. Most of the time when Jesus talked about the Pharisees, he said the Pharisees stood on the Corners of the street and they held their hands up to heaven. You remember that? The Bible says when they went to the temple, that one guy that was a publican was kneeling, wouldn't lift his face off of the ground. The other guy was not. He was upright and he was praying, Lord, I thank God I'm not like that publican. So standing was an accepted way to pray, and most Jews prayed standing up. If you go to Israel today, you'll go to the wailing wall, and you see these dudes doing something like this over. Man, it would drive me nuts. I'd have such a headache. And they bounce back and forth, and they'll do it for hours. That's the way they pray. But notice the Bible says when Jesus goes to the garden and kneeling down. Did you catch that? He prays. And he says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, and he strengthened him. Now, can I help you with something? I think what's going on in this passage is that Jesus is in the midst of suffering. Jesus is in the midst of seeing what lays ahead of him. And he looks forward to the cross and he sees the agony and the injustice. And by the way, he sees the fact that his father will turn his back on him and forsake him. And Jesus basically says, Lord, if it could be your will, is there any other way that this can take place? And the Bible says about that time, an angel comes and strengthens him. Now, I mentioned I'd say some more about that. When I was a kid growing up, we used to sing a song. Do you remember? How many remember that little children's chorus that we used to sing that, that basically says, he we are weak, but he is Some of you didn't sing that? When you think about Jesus being weak, does that give you a problem? <laughs> Can I help you? I'm not being ugly. But most of the kids' songs that we sing aren't really rich in theology. 
do, Lord. Oh, do, Lord. Oh, do remember me. Do, Lord. Oh, do, Lord. Man, we really got some real theology in that song. Come on, smile at me. I know they're kids, and I know that, that you're just getting them to sing and it's participation, but theology is not part of children's songs most of the time. The Bible says here that Jesus has an angel, and this angel comes, and it strengthens him. And notice being in agony. Sometimes the King James translates this word struggle. Being in, in anguish, being in a struggle. The idea of the Greek word is contending with an adversary. Jesus prays more earnestly. He, he uses more fervor in his prayer. And the Bible says, and his sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I was studying that this week. Did you know there's some that say, oh, there's no way that somebody could sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. That's just Bible talk. No, actually, there is a medical term for that, and it's the idea of, of capillaries bursting in and around the sweat glands, and when the people sweat, it's almost like they sweat little drops of blood. Others have done that. In moments of anguish, in moments of struggle, they, they're under such stress that they begin to bleed through their sweat glands. The scripture says it begins to drop down to the ground. And he rose up from prayer and he was gone with the disciples and he found them sleeping. By the way, if you read it and put the pieces together, Jesus goes to these guys three times, three times. You need to wake up and pray. You need to wake up and pray. You need to wake up and pray. And one of their answers on one of the occasions in the Gospels is, Lord, listen, our, our, our spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You ever felt like that? Lord, I'd like to, but right now I'm sleeping. And the scripture says he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why sleep you? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. So the point that I want to get across to you is Jesus goes to the garden. Jesus is under anguish. Jesus is filled with weakness, an angel comes and strengthens them, and he prays three times, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Now keep that in your mind, because I want to turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's turn over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So we find in Jesus' life that he had a moment of weakness, and he asked God three times, Lord, take this cup from me. Let's look at the Apostle Paul's powerful weakness. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter, tw chapter 12, just for a second. Now, let's look there. I'm hopefully going to do my, better on my time. Look what it says, verse number 7. You got it? All right, let me, can I give you some background on 2 Corinthians? Look up here just for a second, because I want to try to help you with the, I think you need to understand the Bible. 2, Quran, 2 Corinthians is a story of the great Apostle Paul vindicating his apostleship. There were those in Corinth that were attacking Paul, basically saying that Paul wasn't who he claimed to be. And he didn't have any degrees. He didn't have any uh, letters of recommendation. And Paul's just a kind of 
flash in the pan, don't worry about what he says. And so Paul begins to defend his apostleship, and one of his great defenses is found here in chapter 12 because he talks about revelations that God's given to him. Now, how many of you have had God reveal books of the Bible to you? Paul had 13, okay? But this particular revelation that he's going to talk about is going to heaven. Now, by the way, can I just say this? If you've had a revelation of going to heaven, don't come tell me the story after church. I'm proud that you went there. Thank God you didn't go to hell and have one. Amen. Would you agree? Amen. I've met some weirdos, nice people. Let's go move on. <laughs> it's, let's look at the verse. It says, it's not expedient for me to glory, doubtless to glory. I will come and envision the revelations of the Lord. He tells about a guy 14 years ago. He says, I knew this guy that was caught up to paradise and he saw heaven and he was forbidden by God not to say anything about it. Now, the obvious reason that God didn't let him talk about it is because there was a guy named John who's going to have the book of the Revelation and God's going to use him to reveal all the stuff that Paul saw also. And so Paul gets caught up to heaven 14 years previous, by the way. If you do the math and go backwards, Paul was in a place called Lystra. Paul was stoned and left for dead. The next day, the disciples go out. There's a pile of rocks covering old Paul up. And all of a sudden, he stands up. The rocks begin to fall away. And there he is. And you say, Pastor, what happened? I think he died while he was dead. God took him to heaven, showed him heaven, and then God said, basically, you're going back. You don't get to stay. And he put him back in his body, and Paul, you know, cuts, gashes, bruises, stands up, and off he goes, round two. All right? So it was at Lystra. Now, let's, let's read the story. Drop down to verse 7. I'm trying to save a little time. It says, lest I should be exalted. Can I help you with this? Lest I should be proud. If you look carefully, there's the potential for vanity. If you, were, if you received a, a vision of heaven, do you think maybe you'd go on television and tell everybody? Do you think that you'd get a little circus tour going? Talk to the guy that spent 24 hours in heaven. There's potential for vanity here. And if you look at what Paul writes, Paul begins to say, you know, there's a temptation here to, of being proud. He said, though I should be exalted above through the abundance of revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Underline the word thorn there. Some people uh, wonder what the thorn was. Now, the word thorn in this particular Greek instance is the idea of the point of a hook. How many have ever gone fishing and hooked yourself? That's what it's talking about. The point of a hook. He had a thorn. And some people say, well, Pastor, what do you think his thorn was? Mm, there's a lot of things. A lot of things. Some say maybe Paul was married, was married because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and maybe he got divorced when he got saved, and his wife wouldn't go with him. Wife wouldn't have nothing to do with him, because once he was going to be a rabbi, now he's not going to be nothing but a missionary. And so she buzzes him. Some people say that was what his thorn was. Some people say that when Paul was dropped over the side of the wall, that in Damascus, when he was first saved, they put him in a fish basket that they would 
take fish up into the city, that they dropped him. He broke his back. And from then on, he was kind of a hunchback. Some people say that's what it was. I kind of think that maybe it was Paul writes Galatians, and at the end of Galatians, he said, you see what big letters? He said, I wrote this one with my own hand. He said, the letters are big because I can't see. Bad eyes. Another occasion, Paul talks about one of the churches. He said, you would have willingly given your eyes to me. Maybe that's what it is. By the way, he never says. You know why? Pay attention for a second. He don't want you to know. Paul doesn't want anybody to know what his thorn is because if, if that's his thorn, what if you don't have that? What if Paul would have said, well, I stutter. I... Well, about 95% of all people never stutter. So you can't identify with Paul's thorn. So Paul keeps his thorn to himself because I think everybody's thorn is different. I think we can all identify with a thorn. I'm kind of glad he didn't tell you what it was because now it works for me and it works for you. So Paul talks about this, this thorn. Now let's go through the passage and let's pick it up real quick. He says, he said, there was a thorn that was given me in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now there was an affliction involved. That word buffet, by the way, it's the idea of taking one's hand and smacking somebody on the face. He said that thorn buffeted me. It was like the messengers of Satan, the, the henchmen from hell, Satan's adversary, uh, uh, eminaries, came along and they began to buffet me. They began to slap me with their hands again and again and again. So Paul said, I had this, this thorn, and it was used by Satan to buffet me. Why? Here's the reason. So that I wouldn't be exalted above measure. God was so good to me. God showed me so many incredible things. God caught me up to heaven, and I got to see unsearchable things in heaven. But God said, you can't talk about it. And so he allowed Satan's emissaries to come and buffet me so I wouldn't get proud. Isn't that interesting? Now he goes on. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice. What do you do when you got a problem that won't go away? What do you do when you got a thorn in? Was that ringing? Maybe I'm too close to that. I'll walk over here. It says stay in your spot. Don't come over here by me. Basically, what do we all do? Lord, take it away. I'm tired of it. Lord, I've borne this thorn. He said, I asked God three times that it might depart from me. And notice what God does. Notice this presence of victory in his life. He says, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. Notice the verse, for my strength is is made perfect in weakness. Strength and weakness. You say, Pastor, why does God give us thorns and refuse not to take them away? Because God knows when you're weak, you're strong. 
because he has sufficient grace to bear every problem. Look at Paul's response. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Did you notice the word infirmities has got an S on the end? It's not singular, it's plural. He's saying, man, bring on the problems. Give me the thorns. And, and look at some of the thorns that he bore. Look at the way the verse reads. The Bible says, my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. He says, I take pleasure in my infirmities. Notice, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, when I am weak. What? You know, the amazing thing about this incredible passage of Scripture is Paul said, I've learned the sickness of strength, and it's when I'm the most weak. You say, Pastor, why does God give us thorns? Are you listening? Because God wants us to teach a paradox. My weakness equals his strength. When I'm the weakest, I'm actually the strongest. Amen. You see, folks, we want to handle every situation, and we, we're fearful that somebody will see us at weak as a being weak, but only when we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize we can't handle the burdens that we're carrying, we find strength is available in Christ. Amen. And, folks, the point we're trying to make this morning is weakness pushes us up to Jesus and when we get next to him and when he puts his arms around us and when he infuses us with his strength, then we're strong. Amen. Now let's talk about our, our powerful weaknesses for a few moments. What are we going to learn from this passage today? All right, when I'm weak, I'm strong. How does that flesh itself out in my life? First of all, let me say this. Don't confuse weakness with sin. We should embrace our weaknesses, but it's not to be made an excuse for sin. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? I talked to a guy one time. He said, you know, Pastor, my weakness is in the flesh is I cheat on my wife. No, that's not a weakness in your flesh. That's sinfulness. That's sinfulness. It's not weakness. It's sin. You say, Pastor, how do you know it's sin? Because you need to repent of it. Don't confuse weakness with sin. Let me give you a second one. Allow it to, uh, to deepen your dependence upon God. You know, one of the things that amazes me as a pastor, there's been some teachable moments in, uh, in my ministry. For example, September the 11th. Did you know that for about two weeks after September 11th, the church was packed? Man, we called the prayer meeting. Everybody showed up. Everybody was ready to pray.
You know, when real weakness comes and when real thorns come in our life, we need to allow it to deepen our dependence upon God. Listen to some verses. Listen to this verse right here. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 4, you may want to write this down, 4, 5, and 6. It says, then the Lord will create over the Mount Zion and over those that assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter made from the heat of the day, a refuge and a hiding place from the storms and from the rain. That's a credible verse. The Bible basically says when our weaknesses drive us to God, God says, hey, come, and I'll put a canopy over, and I'll help you. Isn't it amazing how we decide after about September the 14th we don't need it anymore? You see, God's glory and the power of Christ is a canopy that rests over us when we're weak. God says, I offer you my power. When you recognize that you're weak, come to me. I'll give you my power. I'll give you my grace. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible talks about Jesus when he came to this earth. He tabernacled among us. And what this passage is basically saying is the same thing. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29 says he gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. That's a promise of God. When I finally figure out that I'm weak and he's strong, he offers me his protection. Amen. Third thing I'd say is this. We need to pray for relief, but ultimately we need to defer to God's will. Paul, how many times did you pray? Three. Jesus, how many times did you pray? Three. But ultimately, you got to come to the place, not my will, but thine be done. You say, why is it that way, Pastor? Because God's going to do his will. You can pray all you want to. You can pray with earnestness. That's what the Bible said Jesus did. He prayed with much firmer a fervor, but it came to the time when he finally found out God's will is different. And I have to submit myself to God's will. You can pray 15 times, but ultimately it's got to be not my will, but your will. And let me say the fourth one would be this allow it to humble you. Paul says, Lest I should be exalted to keep me from being conceited. The weakness in our life sometimes comes because God knows it's weakness that makes you humble. You know, you ever wonder how you can tell whether or not you're humble? I'll tell you a surefire way. When somebody points out one of your weaknesses and you don't get defensive. And you don't get embarrassed. Because you basically recognize God's got a purpose for that. Let me give you the fifth one. Allow it to raise your appreciation of grace. When God responds to Paul's prayer, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. What God is saying is that we can have weaknesses but you shouldn't obsess over it. You shouldn't beat yourself up over it because God says, I've got this incredible thing called grace that I've been waiting to give you. 
And when you get grace, it's an amazing thing. You know why I love my wife so much? She's a very gracious person. I'll tell you something about it. She knows me at my worst, and she still likes me. <laughs> That's grace. Can you amen that? Amen. You know, grace means that God sees us at our worst. And God sees us with our problems. And God sees us with our difficulties. God sees us in our trials. And God says, I still love you. Let me give you the last one. You need to learn the power of sharing it. What did Paul say? He says, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. You know what we do? Let me illustrate. This is a stupid illustration. My wife had breast cancer, and times were hard. I'm going to just be real honest with you. It was a tough time. She was getting those weekly deals, and, and then all of a sudden, and it sounds so selfish for me even to say this, but I, there, there came up a growth on my face right here. And I scratched it off, and it came back. And I scratched it off again, it came back. And finally, it kept getting bigger and bigger, so I, I decided, oh, I'll just put a Band-Aid over it. So I started walking around with a Band-Aid over it. And it kept getting bigger and bigger, and I'm thinking, I wonder what that is. So the day that we went to the hospital, and she was in the process of going through all the stuff she went through, and then being put back together, so to speak. I don't want to get too much into that. That's not very nice, but anyways. There was a plastic surgeon that was part of the mix, and he was doing his thing. And he comes out after he has a plastic surgery, and he, I didn't have that Band-Aid on. He looks at my face. He said, do you know you have cancer on your face? Well, that was a little blunt. You have to see my backside. You think that's bad? It's <laughs> <laughs> the way I wanted to say it, but I didn't. He said, you got cancer on your face. I said, we need to cut that off. You know, for about six weeks, I did my best to hide it. I did my best so nobody knew anything about it. What's wrong with you? Oh, I got something here. You know, a little something here. And Paul says, I most gladly, therefore, glory in my infirmities. Come on, does that blow your mind? Yeah. Now, I'll be really honest with you. I didn't go to Kroger's and say, hey, would you like to see my cancer? But, you know, the bottom line was it, it was there, and the guy cut it off. Howard Hendricks was one of my favorite teachers. He was a professor at 
Dallas Theological Seminary for years. I got to hear him in person on several occasions. Always incredible teacher. He taught an inductive Bible study, basically how to study the Bible inductively by asking questions of the text. Really helpful. But one time as I listened to him teach, and by the way, I had Howard Hendricks on a pedestal. I really did. He had one eye that was gone. He had a patch over his eye. And he was a bald-headed elderly man by that time. And for one hour, he was talking about his lifelong battle with depression. And I'll be really honest with you, he just about blew my socks off. You know why? I thought, isn't that amazing? One of the people I think is the greatest Bible teacher I've ever heard, and he admits to this group of preachers how much problems he has with depression his whole life. Could it be that maybe he learned that there's strength and weakness? Two thousand five, Hurricane Hurricane Katrina came through. The Washington Post Post did a major survey, and they talked to the refugees of Houston. They asked about their faith in God. Listen to this: remarkably, eighty-one percent of of them said the ordeal, Katrina, strengthened their faith. Only 4% said it weakened it. What's my point? You learn more from your weaknesses because there you learn God's strength. Amen. Randy Acorn says it this way, through suffering we become powerless so that we might reach the powerless. Our suffering makes Jesus visible to the world. Suffering creates a sphere of influence for Christ that we would not otherwise have. You say, Pastor, what's one of the hardest paradoxes you've ever tried to learn? Real strength is found in my weakness. It's when I'm weak that I'm strong. Roger Thompson was in high school and he got a job working for Brinks Armored Company in San Bernardino, California. True story. They'd bring over the coins from Vegas, slot machines, and they'd bring over trucks just filled with quarters, dimes, nickels, pennies. Roger's job was to run a coin wrapping machine. He would wrap quarters in bags of $1,000 each. One day, he was wrapping quarters with his boss. Larry got a frantic call from Brinks of America in downtown San Bernardino, and he said, the bank is out of coins. Larry looked around and all the armored trucks were out on their routes, so he backed up his old Ford pickup truck and he said, hey, I need $25,000 worth of coins in the bed of the truck right now. Larry and Roger started throwing 80-pound bags of coins from into the truck bed, and when they had enough, Larry told Roger to hop in and go with them. They pulled up in the front of Bank of America, and Larry said, you stay here, you guard the stuff while I go get a dolly. 
Roger was thinking, I don't have a gun, I'm only wearing a t-shirt and jeans, pay no attention to the $25,000 in the back of this old Ford pickup. And by the way, will you listen to me for a second? That's the way God does it. God puts $25,000 in the back of an old Ford pickup and we miss it because we say, hey, the person's got bad breath or the person's got low social skills, but God's right then and there answering prayer and moving in profound ways in our life because God hides his power in weak people. Some of you are out there saying, you know, this is the most depressing sermon I think I've ever heard. <laughs> I went to school years. And you're telling me God doesn't want me. He wants somebody that will be weak. I'll say this poem. You've heard it before. I walked a mile with laughter. She chatted all the way. But I was none the wiser for the things she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow, and got a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned when sorrow walked with me. Stop and think about it. How many have gone through really great, wonderful mountaintop experiences? We all have. What'd you learn? But get the props knocked out from under you. Have the doctor tell you what you never wanted to hear. Grow through a great financial situation. And let's talk about what you learned then. That's the paradox. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful today we can come to your house and we can learn some of these great paradoxes. You said when we're weak, that's when we're strong. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed just for a moment. How many would be honest enough to say, Pastor, you know what? I kind of can agree identify with that. I'm going through a weak time in my life. Did you know this could be a time of great strength? This could be 